Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light on our path. Today's topic, first day, that is Sunday, worship. Uh, maybe I'm not saying that right. We say first day worship, but we're not worshiping the day. We're worshiping the risen Jesus who appeared on that day. But here's my question. Why do most Christians gather for public, corporate, congregational worship on the first day of the week, commonly called Sunday? Why not Saturday, the Sabbath? Now, you see, this is a legitimate question to ask. Since the Decalogue, that is God's ten words that he uttered at Mount Sinai when he instituted the Mosaic Covenant, commonly known as the Ten Commandments, specify the seventh day as the day of rest from common task to remember God as creator in Exodus 20 and to remember God as the deliverer of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Two reasons given for the observance of the seventh day as a Sabbath of rest. Sabbath simply means rest. By the way, it does not mean worship. It means rest. It means cessation of labor. Cessation of all common labor in order to devote oneself to the remembrance of God as the Creator and the Redeemer. Now that was God's command given to the Hebrew people given to the Jewish nation. And it involved not only that day, it involved every seven years and involved every 50th year. There were a whole set of Sabbath days given, but the first one was the day. One day a week on the seventh day, not the first day, but on the seventh day, they were to stop all labor and they were to think, maybe rehearse, maybe share in their families. It doesn't tell us exactly how, not in the commandment. We know historically how things did develop. But the Sabbath was of great importance in the Mosaic Covenant, in the Old Testament. And yes, Jesus and the apostles who were Jews kept the Sabbath day on the seventh day. They went and worshiped on that day. They also kept all the feast days, and they went to the temple in Jerusalem, and they made the sacrifices. They did all that the law commanded that they do. And Jesus must do that because he has come to fulfill the law in order that he may qualify to redeem us who are under the curse of the law because he was made a curse for us. That happened on the cross. Okay, so we have the Sabbath. The seventh day of the week, what we commonly call Saturday. Now, there have always been a small group of Christians who've continued to keep the Sabbath. In the first century, some Jewish believers in Christ felt the Mosaic holy laws, especially the Sabbath, should be observed. So, a very small group of them continued to observe other feast days, but a, a larger group of them continued to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath. But they were a small group, a minority group. And that's continued through the centuries. 
until there has been a revival of some of that in the 1800s. And the concept dating back to the days of the Puritans. So there's always been a small group of Christians who continued to keep the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday. And in the first century, some Jewish believers in Christ felt that was necessary. In fact, there was controversy in the early church recorded for us in the Acts and the epistles of Paul concerning this concept about keeping holy days. And Paul himself says that the holy days have been fulfilled in Christ. But if some Christians feel they should keep them and are persuaded to do so, they can do so. But they must not require that of others, and it is not required in the New Testament. Well, that was sort of an aside, so let me get back to the main text. So, here's the fact. That is, the Christian faith spread, incorporating more and more non-Jews, that is, Gentiles, the common day of gathered Christian worship assembly has been on the first day, the day we commonly call Sunday. So the question I've asked is why? Why is this the case? Now, that's a very interesting question, and I think it's one that demands a biblical answer. First, the fact the Messiah Jesus arose from the dead on the first day of the week. We read in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, they arrived at the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. I would be too. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. We read in Matthew 28, verse 1. Now in the Sabbath, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. That is, they started on their journey toward the tomb, arriving there, when the sun is risen. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. This is the, apostle, the angel making these statements to the women who reported it to the apostles. The fact. The Messiah Jesus arose from the dead on the first day of the week. Second, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ who had been crucified a few days earlier, appeared to various numbers of his disciples on this day, the first day. He demonstrated in various ways to a number of people that he was risen bodily and physically from the dead, and he was now alive. He began in the morning with the women, 
Later, he appeared to two disciples on their way home. The day came to a close and the risen Jesus came into the room where the ten apostles had gathered. And the next day, on the first day, evening, he appeared again among them and showed his body and the marks of his suffering and death to Thomas, who'd been absent the previous week. So two first days in a row, Jesus appeared to his disciples as they were meeting together in the upper room or in the room where they were gathered locked behind doors. He gathered with them, and we know from the accounts, he spoke to them about the word of God contained in the prophets and the uh, writings, telling them about the Christ and how he has fulfilled those. That's related to us in Luke's gospel. So we know that this is what he did. You see, Christ is in the midst of his disciples on this first day, and he's opening them to him the meaning of the word of God concerning himself. Now that becomes a pattern. It sticks in the minds of the apostles. And thirdly, it should be noted that Jesus came to Jerusalem on this third or fourth Passover during his ministry years. But this time, he came to fulfill the meaning of the feast that God had ordained in the law of Moses. Now, he had been observing the Passover all of his life. It's first recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, when he's 12 years of age and came with his family to Jerusalem for the Passover. We know that he did it during the days of his ministry. But now, this is the final week before he's offered up as the sacrifice for sins, Specifically, he was to be the Passover lamb. At the end of this week, Thursday or Friday, he would expire on the cross. As John the forerunner had declared, Behold, the Lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. He was crucified for sins, the sins of his people. He became the atoning sacrifice. Jesus came and observed the Passover and told his disciples, even in the midst of it, of his upcoming sacrifice in just a few hours hence when he gave them a new covenant sign. He gave them the bread and said, this is my body. And he passed the cup of poured out wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. They left that upper room and went to the garden where he prayed, and then he was arrested and arraigned before the various Jewish courts, ultimately before Pilate, and was crucified and died on that day, the Passover. He, who had come to observe the Passover, became the Passover because he is the Paschal Lamb ordained of God before the foundation of the world. Listen to the word of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he that is God made him that is Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He was the sinless one so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this is in the context of they observing the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. So Christ, in his resurrection, on the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, also fulfills the feast of the first fruits. In fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15 beginning at verse 20. In summary, Christ arose on the first day of the week following the Sabbath of Passover week as the prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits. He died on Passover as the Passover lamb. He was raised on the day after the Passover Sabbath and was the fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits. Noting that in these three facts concerning Jesus, his resurrection was on the first day of the week. So he made his first appearance as the risen Lord to a number of disciples and witnesses throughout that day, and it ends thusly. We recorded this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Eight days later, that again be on the first day of the week, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Based on these facts that I've indicated, in the book of Acts, or Luke's second volume, we see a pattern has emerged. It's beginning to emerge. We read in Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and following. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you do also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. Now, he was talking about a special election, a special collection, I'm sorry, a special collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But obviously, they're meeting on this first day of the week, and that's when collections were made. He wants them to be setting aside and saving this collection so that when he comes, he can collect it and take it to the saints in Jerusalem. These two references are the only places outside of the resurrection narratives where the term, the first day of the week, is used. The Corinthian church was aware that the resurrection occurred on the third day, which was the first day of the week. We find this recorded to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 
1 through 8, where Paul goes through the list of those who've seen the risen Christ on the third day after he has been crucified. If we see that the disbelievers are gathering on the first day of the week to break bread, we can directly relate this to the descriptions given of Christian worship in the New Testament. In other words, if they're gathering on the first day of the week because Christ has appeared to them on this day and they sort of become in a habit of gathering there to read the scriptures that he had also done to them and explained to them, Acts 2.42 says this about Christian worship in the early days. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Now, they did that at first every day, when they, right after the resurrection and ascension. But as time goes on and the church begins to spread, they are continuing a pattern of doing it on the first day of the week, which is what's indicated here in Acts 20, verse 7, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, when it says, and Paul is making a negative statement, but from the negative, we know what the reality was. He says, when you come together, it's not that the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? Because they were misbehaving at the supper. So therefore, they were disrespecting the Lord. But the reason for their gathering was called to do the Lord's Supper, to have the Lord's Supper. And Paul states that the behavior of some of the people dishonored the Lord and fellow believers, and therefore, this was sort of making a mockery of that supper, at least those that kind of behavior. This accounts for the negative form of the sentence. Nevertheless, the sentence indicates that the reason the early Christians came together was to share in the supper that the Lord had ordained. The Lord's Supper, then, was central to their coming together. That's not the only thing they did, as Acts 2.42 says, and as other scriptures indicate, the sharing of scripture by reading it, the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of the prophets and the psalms, and songs, psalms, and music, offering of praise and prayer and instruction was the result in the church being strengthened. That's why they came together on this day, which came to be called the Lord's Day. At least we know that by the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century from the apostolic writers. And therefore, we've interpreted Revelation 1.10 when it says the Lord's Day to be the first day of the week or Sunday. But that's an interpretation, not a direct statement. But here we see that the supper was often shared, maybe weekly shared, on the first day of the week when the brethren, the believers, gathered together to break bread. The God's command, God's command to his people are there to offer him worship. This is true in the Old Testament with those feast days. It's true in the New Testament in the context of the assembly of believers together. God's people are commanded to offer God worship in the context of the assembly, the gathering together of the people of God around the word of God both spoken and enacted in the supper and in other rituals that might be ordained, such as baptism, when that occurred. That doesn't mean that's the only day it should be done. It only indicates that this was the common pattern, a fixed pattern that seems to have emerged in the first century and has continued to be observed by Christians throughout 
the generations. So, this emerging pattern of gathered worship on the first day is a fixed pattern by the time of the writing of the Apostolic Fathers. Let me give you just two quotations to corroborate this. The first is from the Epistle of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas wrote his letter sometime between AD 70. We know that he wrote it after the destruction of Jerusalem because he mentions the destruction of Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD. And he died in 130. So somewhere between 70 and 130, he wrote the epistle of Barnabas. He has a chapter entitled The True and False Sabbath. Very interesting chapter to read. This is how it ends. See how he is saying that it's not your present Sabbaths that are acceptable to me, but with that Sabbath with which I have made, in which when I have rested everything. Now he's talking about the end of the ages. He interpreted the Sabbath as an eschatological fulfillment, ultimately. I will make the beginning of an eighth day, that is the beginning of another world. Wherefore, also, we observe the eighth day as a time of rejoicing, for on it Jesus both rose from the dead and when he appeared, ascended into heaven. So you see, Barnabas said Christian worship was occurring on the first day, just like I did, because Jesus arose on that day and he appeared to his disciples before he ascended on that day. That's why it emerged as a pattern in the early church. And that's why Christians have continued, for the most part, most Christians, to observe a day of worship on the first day of the week. Here's another one, though. First apology of Justin. Now, Justin was a Christian apologist, and his first apology is dated between A.D. 155 and 157. So this is very close to the time of, of the early church. The, late, the last apostle, John, died sometime in the 90s. Okay? So here, very early witness, he provides information on the weekly Sunday gathering, the first day gathering of the congregation. Now, he doesn't call it Sunday because at that time they didn't have that word. But it was the first day of the week. And it consisted of readings from the Jewish prophets and the memoirs of the apostles, that would be the gospel narratives and the epistles, the prayers, and a meal. That's the Lord's Supper. You see the same content. He says that's the pattern of Christian worship. Chapter 67 on the weekly worship of Christians has the following two paragraphs. I quote, And on that day called Sunday, well, they have called it Sunday by this time, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought forth, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each of what? Well, the bread 
and the wine, and a participation of that over which thanks has been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. So if you weren't able to come to the gathering, maybe because of sickness or weakness, they brought it to you. A continuation of that celebration, that Lord's Supper, that communion we came to call it on the first day. The second paragraph. Sunday on, is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. End of quote. But I want you to notice something. Notice that he connects creation, the first day when God made the world by banishing the darkness and creating light. But you see, Jesus Christ, on the day in which he rose from the dead, on the first day, he makes the new creation. He instituted the new covenant in his blood on the cross. And he brings in the reality of the new creation in his resurrection life, in his fulfillment of the Feast of first fruits, in which we share in that resurrection, first by our regeneration through faith in his name, that regeneration that induces, brings about our repentance and our faith, our union with Christ. But that does not end. It begins and it will culminate in the resurrection from the dead at the last time when Christ returns. And the new creation is not just in the lives of the believers, the redeemed, but it will be a conversion, not a people, but a total regeneration of the whole earth, a new creation with a new heaven and new earth wherein God will dwell with his people forever. Now, this is the witness of Scripture. This is the witness of the early Christians through the apostolic writings. Now, these references show why John and the Apocalypse, commonly called Revelation, chapter 1, reference to his being in the Spirit on the Lord's day is being interpreted to be a reference to the first day of the week. Now, that's not an established fact is a reference. But Sunday is the day of gathered Christian worship. Now, on the negative side, let me indicate this. Nowhere do the scriptures or the early Christian writers say that gathering on the first day for worship is a transference of the Sabbath command of the law. That is not true. Though there are some who teach that, but that teaching began primarily with the Puritans. Not even their early reformers on the continent believed that. The first day was a unique day, the day of the worship of the risen Christ, of his believers. It is the common day of Christian worship following the pattern of Christ's post-resurrection appearances to his apostles. Christ, you see, is our true Sabbath rest. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath not Sunday. 
He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's our Passover lamb. We don't continue to keep the Passover of the Old Testament. And first day, Sunday, is the usual day of assembled worship before the living God in the risen Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Since the earliest days after Christ's resurrection and ascension, why has the church of the Lord Jesus Christ worshiped on the first day of the week, that is, on Sunday? Here's the answer. Primarily, because it is the day not only on which Christ arose, but the day on which he appeared first several times to various groups of his disciples. A new and glorious day in God's plan to save his people had arrived. The old had passed away, and the new had come. That's what the Barnabas epistle talked about, and Justin as well. The Messiah had arisen and appeared. On the next first day, he appeared again to his gathered disciples, with Thomas being with him. And this did not go unnoticed by his disciples. They began gathering for worship and instruction on every first day since then. We've seen examples of the New Testament and of the later writings from the early church history. It is a day of spiritual rest for the people of God. We rest in the Messiah and his finished work for our salvation by means of the public worship of him as a gathered body of those who believe in him and have eternal life because of his work. So it began then, and it continues now. So let us come to the Father, through Jesus the risen Son, and give him the glory for redemption and the new creation. We can gather on the first day, and we can gather any other day as well, to worship him who made our salvation. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insight.